0: Welcome back, everybody, to another week of the So We Speak podcast. And we're going to do one of my favorite things on the podcast. We, for the second week in a row, we've got all three of us here. I'm Cole Fakes. I've got Ben Williams and Terry Fakes here with me. And we're actually just going to answer a couple of questions that we've gotten over the last couple of weeks in our email. And uh, we, we love to get questions. A lot of times we will just respond to those over email but these two questions I thought would be really good to address in a podcast uh, because I think they're questions that we've wondered and in certain cases done some, some pretty good work on these questions. But then secondly, I feel like these are just questions that every Christian thinks about. And so mm-hmm. it would be good to deal with these and discuss. And uh, if you have feedback, obviously send it to us at info at so we We'll answer any question or we'll tell you that we have no idea, which maybe you already know. So the first question we got from a listener named Dean is just a broad question, and that is, can you guys talk about the doctrine of the Trinity? The Trinity is one of the more difficult, confusing doctrines in the Christian faith. What do Christians need to believe about it? What can we know? What can we not know? Um, I'm assuming the two of you guys can take care of this in about... 45 seconds, so I'll just kick that huh. over yeah. to you. It's, it's like ice and water yeah. and steam. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Patrick.
1: I say that tongue-in-cheek yeah. because one of the problems with the Trinity, I'll just jump out there with this, and speaking of the, about the Trinity is, you know, we use a lot of analogies, uh, knowing that they're not, you know, accurate to understand God, but it's really hard to find an analogy, in, in my opinion, of the Trinity Because there is a little bit of, uh, I hate to use the word mystery because that sounds bad to us, but there is a a sense of transcendence to that idea. And a lot of the analogies we come up with just really aren't quite on. And and I do think that's probably what prompted this question, and I think it's a great question. Mm -hmm. Uh,
2: By far, anytime someone asks me about the Trinity, I always start them out, uh, and this is silly, of course, but I I start them out with a... um, YouTube video, the the Lutheran satire video with the uh, Connell and Donald arguing with St. Patrick about the Trinity. <laughs> Mostly, that is worth doing. Almost, oh, almost great. everything I know about the Trinity is somewhere in that video. And anytime someone gives me an analogy for the the Trinity, I just groan, "Oh, Patrick," and move on because it yeah, it, it is difficult. It's supposed to be difficult um, from a philosophical point of view. If you're gonna say something. No, let's start back. If a being could exist that is different from humans, then by definition, there would be limits where human language, symbols, and analogy would break down. That's, if you can just concede the point that such a being could exist, then you're forced to that conclusion. And I know that's, that's really frustrating, to especially kind of the atheistic skeptic who wants to say that's what you christians do anytime we put you in a corner you say well god's really hard to understand well god's really hard to understand i mean if he's god if then that's at least a potential there are going to be horizons to human knowledge of him and the closer you get to the divine character and being the more obvious those horizons of knowledge come to the forefront um Things we argue about in Christian philosophy about omniscience and what does it mean to be omnipotent? Uh, how does God interact with time? And yeah, the Trinity would be questions pertaining to Him in exactly the areas He's different from us, and so require language we we may not have. And so mm-hmm. we want to say something because silence makes for a really awkward podcast. But we're also going to acknowledge that whatever we say is only going to be true to an extent that language can say something useful.
1: Ben, that's really uh, an astute uh, beginning, and, and I'll, I'll take a stab at this, and I'll just tell you how I like to think about it. I'm not telling you this is the right way to think about it or sufficient. I am an analytical person, and I like to have a systematic understanding And there are many doctrines in the Bible, many teachings that that lend themselves to that, that are very straightforward. I like the doctrine of the Trinity because it makes me uncomfortable, and it makes me uncomfortable in the sense that I can't put it in a box. Mm -hmm. Here is what I know. A lot of people struggle because they say, you know, there's not one spot where it just says, okay, guys, there is a Trinity. There's the Father, there's the Son, there's the Holy Spirit, and we're three, and we're one. I mean, there's not this little explicit statement, but as I read, and let me just limit myself to the New Testament for the moment, but as I read the New Testament, it jumps off the pages to me that God is the Father, God is the Son, God is the Holy Spirit, and they are three, and they are one, and I can't systematize that but I know that that is what is vividly taught in the New Testament. And frankly, that's good for me. Yep. I believe it because it's taught. I cannot say to you that I completely grasp this in a systematic way. And actually, I, I think that's a good thing.
0: Yep. So I'm taking this as evidence that you do not believe in the originality of the Johannine comma in 1 John. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> So what I'm referring to here is one of the big debates in in Trinity is, yeah, there's no Bible verse that just says God is a Trinity. They're all God, but they're not the same. Three persons, one God. There's no verse that says that. Now in 1 John 5, 6 through 9, you do get a little bit of a sense for that. But you don't get that exact statement.
1: And well, then, and to be fair, Colt, we are in complete agreement on that. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I simply mean don't expect everything to be written out blatantly. For example, Paul ends uh, letters like this. May the love of God the Father, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Yeah. I mean, how much more could you want about the Trinity? I'm simply saying the Trinity gets expressed to me in a non-systematic but absolutely truthful way and I'm comfortable with that. I think
0: that's a good way to put it because the Bible is clear about the reality of the Trinity. Yes, um, but that's the a good point. statement of the doctrine of the Trinity right. is not found explicitly in the Bible. You never have a portion in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, actually to be an orthodox Christian, you have to get the Trinity thing right. But that doesn't mean that we don't see the Trinity all over scripture. Uh, as the true nature of God. So we don't think that the Mm -hmm. Trinity is a manufactured doctrine that helps us understand the Bible. We believe that the Trinity is a doctrine taught in the Bible, and it is codified, even the word Trinity, is created to express what is on the pages of Scripture. Agreed. And As
1: a matter of fact, I'll go even a little farther, and I will say... The New Testament does not give us the option of understanding God in any other way than three in one, mm-hmm. yeah. and whatever you want to call it, however I want to systematize it, I don't believe you can read the New Testament and say I can then I can conceive of a God in these in these passages that is different than three in one. I, I don't think you get another option.
2: Right. And to their credit, the church fathers who kind of arrived at the articulation of those doctrines. Um, did it for exactly those reasons. I think sometimes we think that they were just trying to make things complicated and maybe some days they were, but I'm looking at the Athanasian Creed for a second. We worship one God in trinity and trinity and unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. When they wrote that, hmm. they knew what a mouthful that was. I mean, they they knew if there was any way not to say that, it would be preferable for the simplicity of the doctrine of the church. But that scripture demanded a statement such as that uh, was why mm-hmm. they ended up saying it and why they end up saying, if you don't believe that, you aren't part of the church Catholic. I mean, they, they made that determination right. because they were pressed to it by scripture. Um, there's nothing in Greek philosophy or pagan philosophy that makes you want to be a Trinitarian. It's something that right. comes <laughs> to you from the scripture.
0: Right. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up the creeds because uh, for, I would guess, the vast majority of the people listening to this podcast are broadly evangelical Protestants. And in most denominations, or especially if you're non-denominational, outside of the Hillsong song, you probably have very little interaction (laughs) with the creeds. Um, You know, creeds are wooden, they're a little bit mysterious— Ben, as you said, they're often viewed as making things more complicated rather than less. But I, I would encourage everybody listening, go read the any of the creeds, but the ones that we're specifically focusing on in this podcast would be the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, and to an extent the Chalcedonian Creed uh, would be helpful for defining the nature of Christ in the context of the Trinity. But these creeds were originally created to make things easier, not harder. Right. That they were a distillation, a faithful summary of what Christians needed to believe, primarily to a, to an illiterate society. Right. If you knew the Apostles' Creed, if you knew the Nicene Creed, you had the basics down. And the thing that always astounds me, especially when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, is how seriously the Church Fathers took the doctrine of the Trinity and how unseriously, basically, we take it today. Mm -hmm. If you think about two of the huge disputes in the history of the Church, the first one being the Arian heresy over the Nicene Creed, it's over a single letter about the understanding of (laughs) the Trinity. It's where we get the phrase, a single iota, one iota, uh, because it's the difference between the word homoousias and homoousias. Right. Just one letter difference was worth fighting over, excommunicating people over, all kinds of things that it may not have actually been worth, but it was <laughs> worth having a schism and a conversation and nailing down a creed. And then, And then secondly, the split between the Eastern and Western church is over whether or not the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father or the Father and the Son. Right. In the literature, this is called the filioque, or sometimes you hear it called the filioque. <laughs> but uh, the, the Father, only the Father and the Son, where does the Spirit proceed from? That was worth splitting the church um, to into east and west. And that's how serious they took this. You know, I would argue that still
1: happens today. It just doesn't tend to happen over the Trinity. The the issue with the Trinity is fundamental. And you know my position. You read the New Testament. I do not believe that the the God of the New Testament can be conceived in any other way than as a three in one. We don't necessarily argue over that. We've, quote, moved past it. What we argue over is still, though, the nature of God. Uh, Our Tendencies uh, to mischaracterize God, tend to be more along the lines of uh, Jesus loves me, therefore I can do whatever I want. That's not so much a moral statement as it is a statement about who God is. And so we still argue about and split over who God is, but it just doesn't happen to be focused on the Trinity. I mean, what do you think was that?
0: We do have more discussions over the moral nature of God than we do over the ontological nature of right. God, which, which would be what the church fathers were often talking about. Uh, I will say, though, one of the ways that we encounter h- hetero-orthodox theology when it comes to the Trinity is the question over how we're supposed to understand the nature of Christ in view of the nature of God— especially when it comes to Old and New Testaments. This is where I think inadvertently people do stray from Trinitarianism, even if they don't think about it in that category by saying, is Jesus more Godlike, or is God more Jesus-like? And does it matter which part of the Bible you're talking about on how you're going to answer that question? Mm-hmm. That's a moral question, character of God question, but it's actually a Trinity question. Um, and this is where I think we need a little bit better understanding of the Trinity to be able to answer this kind of question. We see the doctrine of the Trinity all over Scripture. We can state it. I think the implications are sometimes where we get confused. Uh, uh, ben, what would you add to that?
2: Um, yeah, all that. <laughs> uh, def- definitely, I, I think that is one of the places where we... We arrive at an inadvertent Trinitarian conflict is uh, trying to find different revelations of God uh, or revelations of different gods uh, in the Testaments. Um, And what the doctrine of the Trinity might suggest, and here I'm probably on thin ice, is that the one God is sometimes known differently to us. Um, Mm. And I don't know how else to say that, but... uh, the way God is known to us, the Father, the person of the Father, is not precisely the same in which I know the Son or the Spirit. Um, even though they're they're co-equal in so many ways, um, the Spirit. I'll just take this as an example. The Spirit uh, seems to prefer to be mysterious. Um, Jesus Himself comments, "He'll he'll not speak of Himself. He'll he'll speak of Me." Right, you don't you don't get out of the mm-hmm. gospels and suddenly get the gospel of the Spirit. The rest of the New Testament, as the church is moved and motivated and filled with the Spirit, is still about Jesus, uh, and and so his movings, even the language of, uh, as you know, the language of the word Spirit, is connected to this idea of wind. Uh, that's just a little bit mysterious, and he seems to prefer that. And so, knowing that there is a person of the one God who is known to me in that way uh, helps me to put together the fact that, oh, it, it does seem like sometimes the way that I know God is different from other times, even in the same Bible, uh, because there are these three persons is, is part of that. It, it could be helpful to recognize that rather than hurtful, but sometimes we, we just turn them into three distinct beings, and then I pick one. Uh, there's a great little book called Spiritual Theology by uh, Simon Chan, the lesser known Chan of theology fame. And um, (laughs) he he makes the observation in that book that you can actually see in Christian heritage which member of the Trinity that particular faith tradition resonates with. So he'll Mm -hmm. say if you see a a very authoritarian type church, they're going to talk about the Father a lot and his law and his justice. Uh, in evangelical churches, we have a tendency to talk a lot about our buddy Jesus, who is, you know, just, it's just me and my buddy Jesus, and he's, you know, right there with me, and, and not at all the way we know the Father. Uh, he becomes so personal and familiar, he almost stops being divine in, in some mm-hmm. evangelical thought. And then maybe in the charismatic movement, you kind of live on these highs and lows of the motion of the Spirit, like a constant roller coaster ride without the stability of the Father or the Son. And so his observation is that a lot of Christian spirituality, sadly, is shaped by kind of picking a person of the Trinity rather than saying, we believe in one God and three persons, and I have to know him in these three relationships. Well,
0: wow, that's, a, that's a great way to put it. That's a really mm-hmm. good point. Uh, the common slip-ups I think that people make fall into one of two easy departures uh, that we've we've hinted at, but I just want to make sure that we get to this uh, to answer this question. I think, you know, if God is is one God, three persons, uh, they are distinct, they are not mixed, but they are the same substance. That's very hard to do anything with other than just. State, yep, right. but when we do try to do things with it, we, we usually fall into one of two errors. The first one would, would be called tritheism, mm-hmm. which is where we we err on the side of them being distinct persons. They are three entities that are not separ- that are not connected to each other. Um, so we have God. The Son, the Spirit, they're all kind of autonomous beings, but they just agree on a lot of stuff. That's, mm-hmm. that's not really Trinitarian theology. The way that we get tripped up on this inadvertently is when we talk about the will of each of the persons of the Trinity being different. So it's pretty common in the history of the church to see the assertion that the will of every person of the Trinity is the same. It is the same. Now, you can bring up, obviously, Jesus praying in the garden. If we had a longer time to handle this, one of the things I'd really want us to talk about is how we understand the Trinity when Jesus is in the flesh on earth. He's Mm -hmm. perfectly submitted to the Father at that point, uh, but his divine will, their wills, are the same. Uh, The other way that we do this, though, is, is called modalism, which is... We have one God, kind of favor that, and he just appears in three different ways. So this would be the ice metaphor. Mm-hmm. And I would say almost every metaphor falls into one of these categories. I've right. never heard a metaphor that I thought was orthodox, no matter how many Lance Ward they has just tried fa- <laughs> to put
1: forward. They just fall short a little bit. They do. Right.
0: They do. Uh, the, the modalism would be God... He is Father sometimes, He is Son sometimes, He is Spirit sometimes. The obvious biblical rebuttal to this are the times in Scripture where you see God interacting among the persons. Jesus' baptism is is a great example. Um, The day of Pentecost obviously is a good example. Um, Crucifixion, resurrection are are good examples of that. Uh, But those are areas I feel like people slip up uh, when it comes to strict Trinitar- Trinitarian theology, uh, if you guys were going to caution against something or, or recommend a resource for people that want to learn more about the Trinity, where would you direct them? Good question. I, I don't
1: read a lot about the Trinity. You know, my approach is I like the idea of being comfortable with a truth that I can't entirely articulate that I cannot put in, in a box. And it's my little piece of mysticism, if you will, in the sense that I can't yeah. put words around it and so fully explain it. I just have to show it to you. You have to read the Bible. Mm-hmm. So I, I have to say I'm a little bankrupt. I don't do a lot of reading in the Trinity. I just simply see the Trinity as it is. Yeah. Um, but I suspect Ben probably has a little more helpful uh, reference here than I Oh, have.
2: absolutely. There's this video by Lutheran Satire... Um... <laughs> yeah, I'm going to link to that, need link to that uh, <laughs> in the bio.
0: you got to watch that. That would be my starting almost place. Almost everything
2: I know is in that somewhere. If you want more serious reading, um, you, you almost have to go to some of the church fathers. I mean, it's it's not fun reading in that they – but you get a glimpse of how difficult it was and how seriously they were taking the questions. So maybe, mm-hmm. maybe even if you don't want to read primary source from the church fathers um, – a kind of church history for dummies type book over the council uh, would be helpful because nearly every question, we, we think we're the first ones who ever asked a tough question about the Trinity. Every question you've ever had about the Trinity, someone has already had in the first six centuries. Uh, they, and they, and they right. fought over it and probably threw somebody out of church over it. I mean, it was serious business. And uh, getting a grasp of how that train of thought developed would probably be uh, from a historical point of view, would probably be as helpful as any single book you could buy. Um, mm-hmm. Eastern Orthodox folks tend to be more likely to say a lot about the Trinity. Um, mm-hmm. They do sometimes tend tilt towards that tritheism, in my opinion, uh, but they definitely do keep the language of the Trinity front and center, um, and so their their books are helpful from time to time. Um but beyond that, no, I, I don't have a lot of resources I recommend. Uh, because, and I agree, Terry, that if, if you're going to be a mystic, here's the place for it. Uh, that you're, right. right to the beginning of our conversation, you're acknowledging the existence of a being who is as much not us as possible, and then trying to say something about him. Um, I like, I like the mathematical analogy. Having said that no analogy works, I'll now invoke one. Uh, the the analogy, if you were some kind of two dimensional being who perfectly understood what a square was, and then I had to explain to you what a cube was, I, st- I would start out by saying, "Well, it's you know it's a square with six sides," and you'd say, "Well, that's logically impossible." And I'd say, "Well, yeah, kinda. Uh, by side I mean face. Well, a square only has one face. Yeah, I know, but this one has six. I mean, it's so you're talking about mm-hmm. six squares. Well, no, no, actually, I mean it's it's one square, but it's a cube." it's you're admitting right up front that I don't have appropriate language and that's kind of where we're at yeah. and that's okay
0: that's a great that's a great way to put it the only thing I'd add is uh, Michael Reeve's book Delighting in the Trinity hmm. is a great book it's about 130 pages easy read it's it's good and then I would just go read the creeds yep. you mm-hmm. can get them for mm-hmm. free on the internet just look up Nicene Creed uh, look up the Athanasian Creed read through see what you think um, those are time tested. Creeds are not our enemies Creeds are our friends um, <laughs> if they're from the first six centuries after that uh, you' kind of on your own on that but for those those creeds are helpful to us and, and that'd be a great place to start.
2: Yeah the uh, I've often said I take my doctrine of the Spirit from the Nicene Creed because after having worked through the doctrine of Christology and exhausted themselves the Creed just ends with and the Holy Spirit. Um, <laughs> they were just tired and they're like yeah we're going to have to come back to that when we know but they, they worked really hard on the first part and that's as far as they got
0: well i want to bring a second question up and this one i'm not 100% sure if this one's going to be easier or harder now that we've <laughs> now that we've talked about that fundamental nature of god in his trinitarian being uh, we've gotten several questions, especially since we did our Genesis podcast over the age of the Earth. So this could be either really short or really long, depending on where you fall on this issue. Uh, but if if we could go ahead and decide how old the Earth is on this podcast, uh, the listeners would really appreciate it. So
2: I have a major complaint. I have a major complaint. I listened to your podcast on Genesis. And I, I disagreed strongly where you guys made the statement, we'll have to ask Ben, our expert on the age of the universe. <laughs> um, that was as near to heresy as you guys are likely to get. Uh,
0: <laughs> That's why we have you on here now. Yeah. We want you to tell us uh, how old the Earth is, the universe. Yeah.
2: Well, that'll be great. The more I learn about it, the less comfortable I feel giving any kind of certitude of, of an answer. I'll say that. Um, I I was privileged, uh, I think it was a year or so ago, Cole, that you had me over to Crossings to be on a panel, and Terry was there and a few Mm -hmm. others, Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think we were asked that same question, and I'll start off with at least part of the same answer. Um, In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and down about to verse 11 and 12, it says that he has made everything beautiful in its time, and he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. There are yeah. some horizons to human knowledge. And specifically in the area of human history, beginnings and endings, we we might be kind to each other and treat those as kind of demilitarized zones where we say our knowledge may kind of slip over the hilltop there. There may be only so much we can say. And yet where do Christians have the funnest fights, if I can say it that way. Uh, eschatology and origins, you know, we'd love to fight about that. And yet it's where we know the least uh, about, you know, the specifics of either one, you know, of, of exactly what it will be like or exactly what it was like. Um, I just don't have that knowledge. I, I have kind of come to a conclusion that's taken a little bit from C.S. Lewis more than from science, which I know is going to be disappointed you're you're assuming the guy with a degree in physics is going to have a scientific answer. I find, I find science to be deeply disappointing in this area just by nature of methodology. Science is really good at present tense knowledge. It is terrible at historical knowledge because it just doesn't Mm -hmm. have the tools to approach that or for fortune telling because it, it can't anticipate the future in the same way. Uh, C.S. Lewis, on the other hand, says, I really don't care about the science. I'm not a biologist. His complaint about a lot of Darwinian evolution is that the, the story's wrong. And if the story's wrong, right. then we can just start there and finish the question. Um, I have a great deal more confidence in a what I might call a plain-sense reading of Genesis 1 than I do in Darwinian evolution. And so because mm-hmm. of that, my, my default answer is to say, if I have to say something, and apparently I do, I want it to sound more like Genesis and less like Darwin, even if that means yeah. that in some area I may not be satisfactory to everybody that listens. Uh, my answer needs to sound more like Genesis. Um, are there lots of great questions in Genesis? Yep, plenty. Um, I'd recommend, uh, is it John Walton, who's done the... Uh, Lost World yeah. books. Those are those are interesting reading. He, he raises some good questions. I don't think he answers them all, but he raises some good questions about how we read Genesis 1. Um, uh, Keller has an interesting point of view. The Biologos guys have an interesting point of view. But at the end of the day, when I, I'm a parent and I have a nine-year-old who's precocious, as nine-year-olds tend to be, and when he says, he asks me in exactly these words, should I listen to science or my Bible class teacher? i feel like I know which one I should answer there. Um, I don't want him to disagree with science, and I want him to learn science, but I want him to know in the simplicity of that maybe bad question that if you're forced to pick a decision on that, um, Scripture's going to be more reliable than science when understood better. Um, Mm.
0: Yeah, you know, what we did in the podcast, if if I remember correctly, is we, we talked about there are certain issues to take a stand on that are more important than the age of the earth. And Ben, I think you've pointed one of those out, which is, can you faithfully read Genesis given your position on the age of the earth? Because if you decide an age of the earth and then you try and read Genesis in light of that, yeah. that's the wrong approach. That's the wrong order. Um, you know, our reading of the text is at minimum, the framework for how we should approach this question. And I, I want to talk about two things within within that point that you just brought up. And, and the first one is plain readings of Genesis often get muddled by a conversation about what type of genre yep. Genesis is. Yep. And we covered this a little bit in the, in the podcast on Genesis. And what we talked about was y- you have a certain kind of biblical genre going on in the first 11 chapters of the Bible. That are fairly different than anything you see. Commentators and and scholars are, are split on this over whether it really is its own genre or whether it is just a different emphasis in the beginning of Genesis. But but regardless, you get some unique stuff in the first part of Genesis. Yes. It's not a science textbook. Right. Now, what some people do with this. Is they say, because it's not a science textbook, it doesn't say anything about science. There's actually no crossover between science and what's going on in Genesis. And I want to make a distinction here that I think is helpful in the discussion of the age of the universe, which is Genesis can be ascientific without being anti-scientific. So what I mean by that is Genesis can be talking about things that are non-scientific. Over, in a different area, at a different altitude, however we want to explain that uh, when it comes to science. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's an anti-scientific book or anti-scientific take. Because I do believe, and, and we'll link to the faith and science talks that, that you referred to, Ben. The conclusion that we came to, that we presented at, the, at those talks were science and faith are not antithetical to each other. Right. In fact, the discipline of science, there's a lot of great literature on this, the discipline of science is best supported by a biblical worldview. Yes. But that doesn't mean that there aren't specific findings of science that are antithetical to what the Bible teaches. Um, and, and there's wisdom in knowing which is which. Which claims we actually just need to outright reject from science because they are the opposite of what the Bible teaches. Versus the claims of science where we don't necessarily need to know if they're true or false. They could probably be either. They're within the realm of what the Bible teaches as an ascientific presentation of creation. That, I think, is a better starting place than, as you're saying, having to choose between should I trust my Bible or should I trust science. A little bit more nuanced view would say in some cases you have to choose between the two. In a lot of cases, you have to decide where is your starting point. And for us, a starting point is a a reading of Genesis that matches the text and the context. Yeah, Yeah, I'd jump in there and
1: and agree with what you guys are saying. The way I tend to approach it is, uh, the way I say that is let the Bible be what it wants to be and say what it wants to say. And I think Genesis wants to say some things very emphatically I don't think it wants to say some of the things we'd like to hear out of it. Uh, and I agree. The fact that it is ascientific in some points does not mean it is contrary to science. Mm-hmm. Uh, but So I do think Genesis wants to establish some very important things, that there is a creator, a personal creator, who created this out of nothing, and he is indeed sovereign, and we do have a purpose. I mean, our everything we know about human rights comes from the very first couple of chapters of Genesis. Mm-hmm. Every logical foundation, every scientist who believes in the dignity of humanity, every politician that believes in that, has no firmer basis than Genesis 1 and 2. So there are some very important things that are said there. As far as the areas where we, we want to dispute, like did God create the earth in six literal 24-hour days? That question itself is a little problematic, but you you know what I mean by that. Or is the Earth 14.7 billion years old? The truth of this is that neither scientists nor nor Christians can prove their point using natural methods of science. So I, I just want to establish this. Scientists don't actually know. They just have a hypothesis based on certain assumptions. I would tell you that 70 years ago, the smartest Scientists in the world thought the universe did not have a beginning. And now you'll be hard-pressed to find a a scientist who thinks the universe didn't have a beginning. It did, and they just uh, flippantly named it the Big Bang. Uh, So science, good science, will change.
2: I, I think that's a wonderful observation, Terry, because imagine trying to interpret Genesis 100 years ago when the scientific culture was certain the universe had always been here, you would be pressured to feel like you need to interpret the language of Genesis 1 as metaphorical in a way that said there was no beginning, like no ex nihilo creation. Mm
1: -hmm. And,
2: And now you would look back and say, oh, that was dumb and unnecessary. And that's kind of, I think, the point we're making if you wait around a little bit, there could be another consensus. I mean, it, we haven't been at this one very long in the grand scheme of things. Um, the The Big Bang model is relatively new. Uh, in The last hundred years, or less. Um, when it when it was proposed by Lemaitre, who was a Belgian uh, Jesuit priest. Um, Fred Hoyle and company opposed it on the surface because, as they said, it smacks of Genesis. Like, they thought it was like some kind of Christian imposter trying to sneak into science. Uh, And now it's the atheistic consensus. Give it a while, you know, we we could change our mind again. It happens every so often. So I I think that's definitely worth mentioning.
1: Yeah, and, And again, I'd say that good science, science done properly, will change. That's not a criticism no. of science. For example, you know, up until the time of uh, Albert Einstein, everybody believed that the universe worked according to Newtonian laws of motion and Newtonian mechanics, and uh, it worked quite well, actually. A lot of good technology came out of that. Turns out it's not entirely correct. Relativity said actually, there's more going on here than you think. Then after relativity. Uh, You get the idea of quantum mechanics, and we realize that in the quantum world, in the world of subatomic particles, a lot of things we thought about the universe are different. Good science will change. Uh, The one thing I I would say that are the no-nos to me is to have such, and I'm going to offend everybody in this one, is to have such a narrow view of the Hebrew word yom And to insist then that that means you must believe God created the earth in six days. I believe you must believe God may very well have created the earth in six days. If you don't have a God that could do that, you don't have the God of the Bible. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, if you believe you need to have a 14 billion year old earth because you feel some kind of pressure to harmonize the Bible with science, that's a big problem mm-hmm. for me because now you're pegging the ultimate authority as science which is yep. you know obviously going to change and instead of saying science at its best will come closer and closer to the bible.
0: Mm-hmm. Well this has been this has all been very amicable. Uh, <laughs> and I think we all we all agree on some fundamental tenets of the approach here. But in the name of a good Q&A session, and while we've got all three of us here, how old do you think the Earth is? Let's, Let's get to the nuts and bolts of this. You read Genesis, you look at the scientific method. One of the things I cannot skip over in a conversation like this is the Earth does appear to be old. And I think you have to do something with that. It at least appears that the Earth is billions, not thousands however many we think on either side, mm-hmm. of years old. So we're left at a point where we have to say, is that an illusion? Is there a process that explains why it appears to be old? Are we mistaken in our observation that it looks old? Where do you guys fall on that?
2: I I like that you said appearance because that does give us the problem that uh, science is capable of looking at kind of snapshots of history. All, all the let's, let's suppose for a moment the universe is 14 billion years old. All of the data we have is less than about you know 100 years. <laughs> it's a very small mm-hmm. amount of data. So you're imagining um, you're watching a candle in a room and it's burning down. How accurate is your knowledge of how long? that candle has been burning. Let's say you you determine it must have been burning for 14 hours. And I say, oh great, so how much data do you have? Um, one one thousandth of a second is when I collected uh-huh. data. And then I extrapolated back. That's, that's a very small amount of data um, to do that much information on. The math, I'm sure your math is great, but how confident can you be in the data relative to what you're projecting? Um, if three seconds earlier a guy walked into the room and lit the candle, uh, then then you're wrong. <laughs> and that's the problem. Right. That if you suppose um, there is a being, a non-scientific, non-material being in the universe, well, then, of course, nothing he would do would be apparent. Um, I can... I can give you pretty good evidence that the dead do not raise uh, based on you know every person who has ever died. And yet I'm also very clear that one person did because there is a person in the universe whose movements don't look like the rest. And because of that potential, all of our extrapolations of data backwards, whether it's in geology and biology, which I'll admit is not my area, or it's in physics and astronomy, which more is my area, um, all of it is, is dependent on the present being the key to the past. That was uh, Lyell and Darwin and all those guys. The present is the key to the past. We can see what's happening mm-hmm. now. We can know the past. And we also know that's almost always false. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's it might be the best we can do, but it's almost always wrong because you don't know, especially with people. I mean, let's use an analogy for a moment. With that candle, if you're trying to determine the age at which this candle has been burning down, what is the most likely factor to make you wrong about your guess? It is personal interference. If there is a being in the room monkeying with the candle, that's the most likely thing to make you completely wrong on everything else you thought. Um, Right. Well... That's actually Sir Fred Hoyle's phrase uh, when he was describing the universe. He says, it seems like someone has monkeyed with physics. It's like someone is tinkering Mm -hmm. with things, and it doesn't add up the way I'd like it to. Um, And the fact that there is a personal being is simply not something that science is equipped to discuss. So um, I I tend to be less persuaded by scientific extrapolations uh, than I am present-tense scientific data.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that was really well put. The, the, the Looking at the present to determine the past is a, a pretty tenuous position to hold. You know, I think of, to jump into your areas of expertise, Ben, I think of arguments, though, like you know, the way that light travels. Yeah. Obviously, one of the fundamental premises of, of astrophysics is nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. And, of course, we get into the wave... Uh, Quality of light when we talk about that. But we have things that we see in the night sky that, at least given the way that we think science works on a big scale, uh, takes longer to get to the Earth than young Earth creationists think that the Earth is old. So we have things far enough away that for the light to reflect, to go from there, to come here, uh, is going to take... Longer than the six thousand five hundred years, you know, for for a young Earth creationist, you have things like that where we are going to be forced to choose. Th- another one would be genetics. So some of the modern genetics research says there was never less than maybe ten to fifteen thousand hominids of a certain <laughs> kind yeah. on the planet. Mm-hmm. So how are we supposed to have a unique pair, Adam and Eve? I mean, we get to those situations mm-hmm. where. You are going to have to just decide what you think on that question. And I I think all of us probably would be similar in the sense that we think there are certain places where you have to take a stand and certain places where it doesn't really matter. What are those lines for you guys?
1: You know, for me, uh, the line is not whether you think the earth is uh, 6,000 years old or 14 billion years old. The line is, how do you think it got that way? If you think it got that way through natural processes and natural processes alone, frankly, that's a that's an insane point of view. But if you think that, I have a problem with it. If you think it happened through randomness, I have a major problem with that. That's barely believable. Uh, so if what's behind it is is the where I have the problem. But to get to your point, not dodge the issue. In my view, the idea of a A 14-billion-year-old earth and the idea of a 6,000-year-old earth, both those ideas are within the Christian tent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, As long as those ideas acknowledge the fundamental truths that Genesis is trying to say is there is a God, and God chose to create the universe. And he may have used different mechanisms for that, but no mechanism can take away God's sovereignty in doing so. So I believe both of those are within the tent. Uh, I am comfortable personally that the universe gives every appearance of of being very old, of being older than 6,000 years. But I want to approach that with a great deal of humility for two reasons, and Ben mentioned them both. One is that uh, science will change. Uh, Right now, it seems certain, but all science ever has are conjectures. Mm -hmm. They're good, and they're useful conjectures, but to say that they're true for all time would be very foolish, So, but I'm comfortable that it appears that way I also believe in a God who could make the earth 6,000 years ago and it would appear this way mm-hmm. so I'm not trying to dodge the issue I'm simply saying I approach it with a little humility yeah. and this is not something that I'd want to stake my faith on because it doesn't appear to be something the Bible wants to build my faith on
2: mm-hmm. yep. Yeah, wholeheartedly agree on that um, i, I I think it's Augustine who is maybe the earliest to make an argument, uh, at least in Christian heritage. I don't know if rabbis did or not. But Augustine makes an argument that maybe the days of creation uh, were extraordinarily long, and maybe maybe that's how it happened. And if Augustine's not orthodox, then I guess you can throw me out, too, because uh, he's kind of the definition <laughs> of orthodoxy from that era of Christianity. So, uh, yeah, he's... Apparently not a young earth creationist. We lost him. So,
1: And I'd jump in there, too, and say, if God showed up tomorrow and said, no, you, you guys, I literally created this thing in six 24-hour days, I'd go, oh, absolutely. I always knew you had the power to do that.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's doubting that God has the ability to do that that's the problem for me. And so it would not surprise me if that were true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would simply say that it appears that is not how he chose to do it. But I'd approach that with a lot of humility. Yeah.
2: I, th- I think it's really important to keep in mind what we've talked about already. The uh, the reality of divine action is not something we have to forget about in order to do science. And exactly, uh, if if, if we believe that in eschatology, I mentioned the resurrection earlier. I mean, there's no all it, from the physics point of view. Again, I'm not a biologist, but from the physics point of view, all the equations that run backwards and project the beginning of the universe also run forward and predict the end of the universe. And I mm-hmm. should be able to say from science with certainty how the universe will end. As a Christian, I don't, uh-huh. I don't think it's going to happen that way. I think the, right. the trumpet will sound and the dead will rise, and it won't be the story science is telling me. So if I don't trust them running forward, I have a tendency to be suspicious of them running backwards. Not because yeah. the science is bad, but because I believe in the reality of divine action uh, in the universe, he's not an agent in creation who might do something measurable. He is the sustainer of reality. Um, Genesis one. Uh, I, I think the guys who have pointed out the genre issues of Genesis one have a fair point that it's not a cause and effect description. That apparently God can make light and then a couple days later say, you know, we need we need some stars. Uh, apparently yeah. that's mm-hmm. apparently that's fine. And so if such a being exists, and I believe he does, then all options are on the table, including a 14 billion year old earth or one that came into existence, 6,000 or whatever Bishop Usher says we're supposed to believe. Uh, That's all on the table. Uh, As we've just repeatedly said, we have to not check Christian conviction at the door of science. I um, I think we're all... At least, I know a few of us here are are, are Alvin Plantiga fans, and one of his great contributions to philosophy and then also by proxy to science is to tell us over and over again, you don't have to check your faith at the door to do these things. We believe God exists, and we can work under that assumption if we want and, and see what kind of different options we have.
1: That's a Good point, Ben. But you know, Ben, I've just noticed something uh, in this discussion. Two out of the three people have kind of gone on the record here, and I'd like to hear from the third. So, Cole, what's what's your view on this?
0: <laughs> um, yeah, I I would agree mostly with what's been said. Like I said, I the thing to me is from a theological standpoint. If the Earth looks old, I don't think.